From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. In the U.S., it's easy to think we're in the final chapter of this global pandemic. Baseball stadiums have replaced cardboard cutouts with screaming fans, and the aroma of fresh popcorn is wafting once again from movie theaters' open doors. As of this recording, more than 60% of U.S. adults have now received at least one dose of the vaccine, and unused doses are available to anyone over the age of 12. But the U.S. is, in many ways, an outlier. The entire continent of Africa accounts for 1% of the world's vaccine administrations, and countries in Asia and South America still lack meaningful access to vaccines. Added to this, variants have made COVID-19 more contagious and in some cases more deadly. This is the global vaccine gap. The global vaccine gap is both a human rights and a racial justice issue. Many of the communities left vulnerable are communities of color. The scale of the problem has united activists and organizations from around the world, including at the ACLU, to identify solutions and fast. For many of the human rights activists and experts, the urgency is part of their lived experience on the ground. This episode, we'll hear some of their stories and learn from one of the ACLU's human rights experts what needs to be done. We'll start with the situation in India. Indians are pretty resilient in the sense that death, ill health, hunger, malnutrition, torture, uh, you know, we, we hear of them, we see it, and we are sort of, we carry on. But this has affected people in a manner we could not imagine. This is Colin Gonsalves, the founder and executive director of the Human Rights Law Network in India. It affects you very close to home because you have your relatives, you have your friends, you have your colleagues, you have people in your office, you have judges. Never has death come so close to the individual who is perfectly normal and free and healthy. Never has his entire surroundings been undermined by death. And it makes you feel very vulnerable, very, uh, you know, out of control. And it makes you feel how small you are really in the larger picture of things. India's recent COVID surge is unparalleled. In the last month, India was responsible for more than half of the world's COVID cases, with a record of 400,000 reported cases a day and over 300,000 people killed by the virus. If you look at the number of people vaccinated, that's uh, very different from the American situation. In India, it is said to be 12%. In Nepal, it is 7%. In South Africa, I'm told it's 1%. In Bangladesh, it's uh, similar figures and so on. So it would be safe to say that in the poorer countries and in the developing world, the levels of vaccination are very low. And there is a tendency, an overwhelming tendency, for the rich to get vaccinated and for the poor to be left out. That tendency for the rich to have access and the poor to be left out is also playing out in other countries around the world, like Colombia. Here's Vivian Newman, executive director of Colombia's human rights organization, De Justicia. 
5.9% of the population that have received the both jobs. And there's 9.5 that have received one job at least. But I would say that Colombia is living in a very difficult moment because we are a very unequal society and we have a big percentage of poor population. It's a very big problem that has brought more problems with the pandemic because people were shut down. They couldn't work. They couldn't go out in the streets. They couldn't go to school. There is no employment. The recent figures show that almost 42% of the population cannot eat the three meals. They go to bed without having the necessary nourishment. Recently, the president presented a tax reform, and this was like the sparkle that set a fire, and people went out to the streets, all young people, students, unemployed, women, uh, Afro-Colombian communities, the indigenous communities, they were all in the streets, democracies right now in the streets, claiming for a consideration of the problem of poverty and inequality, and they didn't really care about COVID. They didn't really care because the need, the hunger was greater than the fear of facing COVID. So we've been in the streets for three weeks now. And during these protests, there's been brutal police uh, brutality. There's also been a lot of uh, disappears. We have more than 1,000 injured. We have more than 20 people that have been shot. Of course, in this turmoil, all the different facets of violence of Colombia come out. So this is the situation that we're living right now. I think that the COVID-19 epidemic brought it out because there was a lot of pressure inside. And vaccination would really contribute to let people work, study, produce, and let the economy boost again. In South Africa, at the moment, we are in the third wave of the virus, especially in urban areas that started about three weeks ago. It's spreading quite rapidly. This is Nursen Govinder, National Director of the Legal Resources Center of South Africa. He tells a similar story. The first two waves we had were huge economic impact with the loss of jobs, and unemployment actually sitting currently at around 60%. COVID-19, the pandemic, has had a huge impact on our country, the livelihood of people, especially given the high levels of poverty in the country. Roughly about under 500,000 have been vaccinated, way below 500,000, and that's some 0.7% of the population. So you can imagine we've got a long, long way to go. Vivian, Nursen, and Colin are all facing the extreme challenges of vaccine shortages. In India, Colin says there is a clear solution. The vaccines manufactured in India need to get into the arms of their own citizens instead of being shipped away to countries with the ability to pay more for the supply. India was a leading manufacturer of vaccines at the time of independence. You have great institutions which manufactured vaccines. Today, there's some mysterious uh, absence. And we suspect that is going to people, countries, entities, you know, groups that uh, have a lot of money. And therefore, they get priority. Not on the basis of comorbidities and so on. Not on the basis of age. Not on the basis of illness. Not on the basis of vulnerability. But they get it 
on the basis of being rich. The data supports Collins' assessment. Countries all over the world, more than 70 of them in fact, received vaccines made in India. Jamil Dakwar of the ACLU's Human Rights Project says the reason this is a problem is because only certain companies have the ingredients and the blueprint to produce the vaccine, leading to a bottleneck and thus a competition of wealth. The bottleneck effect is why countries are fighting for a waiver to the vaccine patent. Because of the government investment in pharmaceutical companies, they were able to do the research, they were able to do the testing, they were able to do all the experiments that needed to be done in order to develop the vaccine. They needed to also get all the supply chain lined up in order to do that. So the know-how of putting all these pieces together is something that has been kept secret by different companies, whether it's Moderna or Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer. So they were able to develop their own vaccines, and yet they were keeping those secrets, and that's how they registered as a patent, and they were able to to say, well, the only way that you can actually get access to what we're offering is that you have to obviously pay us. And so they have made uh, billions of dollars, uh, more than what the government invested. And so what that means is that in order for this know-how, this technology and this recipe, so to speak, to be shared with other countries that don't have the same capacity and capability to develop the vaccine, this has to be shared, this has to be waived. The patent is usually protected in order to, to ensure that people are not you know, stealing those kinds of things. But in this kind of very extraordinary circumstances, when we talk about the pandemic, when you talk about the global health, when you talk about it's a transnational disease that is impacting all countries, and no, no countries can actually kind of protect itself without protecting everyone else, those patents and those kinds of secrets really are the main obstacle, the bottleneck for the production and wider distribution. In order to get more access to the vaccines, advocates and leaders from India and South Africa came together to propose a waiver to the vaccine patent called the Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS waiver. They presented this proposal at the World Trade Organization last year, but have struggled to garner enough support. The ACLU pushed the U.S. to sign on to the waiver. We are very pleased that the Biden administration, because of the work and advocacy and push by many people, including members of Congress, many organizations from around the world, including the World Health Organization, Biden administration responded by expressing its support for the idea of the waiver. But there's a lot of details to be concluded, the negotiations, and there need to be some consensus also at the WTO. That's why now the eyes are on and the pressure is on the European Union, uh, Germany in particular, to support the waiver. Can you explain why some countries are still opposing the patent waiver proposal when COVID-19, as you said, it has taught us nothing else. It has taught us that we are deeply interconnected on a global level. Yes. I mean, part of it is really a very strong pushback by the industry, by the pharmaceutical companies. They are the ones who are being the obstacle for making it work because they are the ones that are holding secrets. They are the ones that are basically pushing back and making it much more difficult for many countries to be able to agree to this. I think that uh, there are all kinds of economic interests involved. There are all kinds of uh, political interests involved in why some countries may or may not. I think now the main challenge is really European Union 
and having European Union support the waiver, particularly with Germany being the most important country with, uh, with again, the access technology and many of the companies are based in Germany, are really key to uh, make this waiver and lead to the changes that are needed at the WTO. So without going into too much of the details of, and I don't know the politics of every country, and why, they, but it's really just to be aware of the pharmaceutical uh, lobbying against this as something that while they're making profit, uh, they think that this, this is something that could maybe limit their own profit making in the future. This could be limit their way, uh, their ability to develop other vaccines or other medicines in the future because it could set a precedent. So there's all these kinds of arguments that are being made in order to, uh, in protecting against the support for the waiver. Nursen believes that there is a precedent for this waiver. Patents have famously been waived or sold for very little money when an invention could contribute greatly to the public good. You know, when I actually dwell on the patents, and if you work out the profit margin of um, the pharmaceutical companies in this whole process, I think about the story of Nils Bolin. I'm not sure whether you heard of Nils Bolin. If you didn't, and in 1959, he was the guy that invented the V-type three-point seatbelt for motor vehicles, and he worked for Volvo. And many don't know that Volvo gifted the seatbelt design to the world to save lives, as one cannot imagine any vehicle without the three-point seatbelt today. So, you know, if you look at it, that was 1959, and you've got a huge motor vehicle company that put lives first instead of profits. Now, if you look at, this is a global pandemic with millions of people being infected on a daily basis while millions of people are also dying. And the thing is, it's beyond me that high-income countries continue to support the profit-driven pharmaceutical companies. And it's coming down to that, you know, um, lives versus profits. Lives versus profits is often what human rights issues boil down to. But it's important we also interrogate whose lives are being sacrificed for profits. Because while COVID impacts all of us, vaccine inequality is specifically harming some. On a recent WTO press call, President Hege Gengobe of Namibia put the problem really bluntly. He said, it's COVID apartheid, invoking the South African apartheid system that divided the country and left millions of Black South Africans in poverty. He used that as a metaphor for the vaccine gap. Does that resonate with you at all? Yes, I think that equitable access to vaccine is a racial justice issue. And it's an issue of racial justice because it's about the inequality, inequity uh, to access to health and medicine and to the resources and to the technologies that would allow people to enjoy those social economic rights, the right to health, a minimum standard of adequate health, and other things that are really important to, to happen. And so when you are excluding or you are uh, delaying this kind of access to vaccines, simply because of the limited resources of a country or its geographical location, uh, which happen to be most of the global south, which happen to be most of people of color uh, in the world population, that that's clearly a divide that is really based on uh, ethnic and racial lines of people who are belonging to these countries are predominantly going to be lacking access to equitable uh, vaccines. So I think that argument is a strong one. And I think that needs to really be 
a wake-up call for people in the United States. The Biden administration is definitely getting this message, and we have made it clear in our letter to the administration that this is a racial justice issue. And as this administration is committed to upholding racial justice at home and abroad, equitable access to vaccines should be seen as part of their efforts to promote racial justice at home and abroad. And you referenced a letter, Jamil, but can you speak more broadly to what the ACLU has specifically done to support the effort to close the gap? So what we did, uh, we sent a letter with our INCLO partners uh, last month to President Biden. And INCLO, just for people who don't know, what does INCLO stand for? INCLO stands for International Network of Civil Liberties Organizations, uh, and it's an international network of uh, national human rights and civil liberties organizations from 15 countries in the global north and the global south. In the United States, the ACLU is a co-founding member, and we have uh, members uh, from literally all over the world, uh, from Latin America, North America, Africa, Europe, Asia, as well as Australia. So it really covers all continents, and as such, we work to promote cooperation and advancements of civil liberties and human rights at both the international, regional, and national levels. Benefiting from our experiences, both as legal advocacy organizations, as well as linking the knowledge that we have to benefit the people who we we try to advocate on their behalf. And in this case, given the pandemic, we've been working a lot in the area of COVID. We've done webinars around the responses to COVID, particularly around issues of incarceration, policing and protests, uh, issues of, um, you know, how now with with access to the vaccine is another area where INCLU is more involved to help support partner organizations, but also the communities in different parts of the world. INCLU is working on this issue because the partners believe that this is a global human rights issue. They are hoping that by using the weight of the coalition, they can move world leaders to action. For Vivian, Nursen, Jamil, and Colin, the moral and ethical cause is clear. Article 3 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that guarantees the right to life and vaccines are connected to the right to life because there's Article 25 of this Universal Declaration also that details the right of everyone to enjoy an adequate standard of living that ensures health and well-being, which also includes health care. It includes access to medicines and to vaccines and to technologies that bring you health or contribute to, to a better standard. They are part of these universal rights. I could tell you all the articles, but what really matters is that it's part of our dignity to be alive, to be healthy, and to to have our, cap- our capacities and opportunities to realize ourselves. So if, you, if you're under danger and you cannot go out to the street because you can catch a disease and die, then uh, you cannot realize yourself. And this is part of what all the societies want people, when the societies decided to sign these covenants, they uh, want people to have so that they can realize themselves. Because that's why we are here in, on Earth, to realize our project of life. And we cannot do it if we are with fear closed in our homes or if, if we're sick. It's beyond the pandemic. It's beyond the vaccine. It's about the survival of people. Everybody cries that uh, these kind of pandemics or illnesses, even the HIV illness and disease, is a human rights fight. And I don't see people s- stepping up or taking center stage beside 
the World Health Organization when the pandemic first started. It has to become a global movement to fight this. Uh, for example, the Black Lives Matter. It became a global movement and everybody knew about it and the world stood up and fought back. But that was during the pandemic when George Floyd was killed. And my question is, where is this momentum that we are asking for to rise up, to rise up against the access to the vaccine? We all deserve it. Without addressing the root causes of systemic inequities in access to medicine, access to vaccine, we will be back in the same place, in the square one, the next time we have another pandemic, next time we have a global health crisis. And so I hope that this will be a wake-up call for our country and for the government, not only in the United States, but also in other governments in the, in the global north, particularly in Europe, where they understand that they do have a global responsibility. It's part of their international obligations. It's part of their history also. You know, there is a history of taking and uh, confiscating the natural resources of uh, many countries in the global south as part of colonial powers. And so that there is that long history between many countries in the north, particularly in European powers, and the, the global south, where they have come to where they are by taking advantage of the resources, both the human resources, including enslavement of people, as well as the natural resources of many countries where they had uh, built, whether colonies or relied on those countries to empower and to enrich their countries. And right now, I think the, the pandemic has only given us a chance to address those systemic inequalities, even at the global scale. The virus recognizes no boundary. It recognizes no national demarcation line. There is nothing that can contain this virus within national boundaries. What happens to India will happen to America because the virus moves and mutates and changes. It moves from India, it goes to America, it mutates, it comes back to India and we don't know what to do with it. Or let's say it goes to Europe and comes back and so on. The virus is teaching us a very important lesson that human rights are global. I have never had death come so close to my circle of people, my family, my friends. It makes me feel much more vulnerable than I ever felt. I never felt I would you know, die anytime soon, for example. I always had that feeling that I'm going to live and carry on doing this uh, mischievous work of fighting against governments you know, for quite a long time. But now you feel vulnerable. You feel uh, very, very alone. And you feel scared. It makes you feel fallible. And like I said, it can have two effects. It could have somebody, you know, retreat into his or her room and watch television and, you know, go for meditation and all that sort of thing. Or it can make you even more active, even more determined in doing what you want to do while you can do it. And I'm optimistic, strangely enough, because I feel crises bring out the best in the human species. People you never thought would share and, you know, go out of their way to help. And once a human being is ready to perhaps even allow his life or her life to be endangered, to do a great public good, that's the finest flame in society. The Council for the TRIPS Agreement, a council that meets to discuss intellectual property rights, met yesterday and today. At this meeting, the council is discussing the vaccine waiver proposal presented by South Africa and India. Later this week, the G7 summit, 
a global meeting of world leaders, is set to take place as well. There is hope that these meetings will bring new solutions to the problem of global vaccine inequality. Thanks so much to Colin Gonsalves, Nursen Govinder, Vivian Newman, and Jamil Dakwar for joining us. And special thanks to Inclo for helping make this happen. And as always, thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.